Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Bill Walker, welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe. I should mention that you and I uh, work together. Yeah, thanks for having me, Paul. I'm uh, looking forward to what I have to say tonight, you, seeing you, if it's interesting. You, you are a man of many experiences, and you've listened to a few of these episodes, uh, and I think you're trying to be like no one else. I think you're trying to do your own thing. Uh, that's, I guess, a way to put it, yes. How would you put it? Uh, I would put it that, uh, yeah, I don't know which direction I'm trying to take. Is it the funny storyteller? Is it the posterity? Is it uh, preaching about personal finance? I don't know. Let's see <laughs> See where you, it goes. You, you could preach to me. I, have, I imagine you're a lot better at personal <laughs> finance than I am. Let, let's do all the above. Okay, let's try that. In, in some measure. It doesn't right. have to be uh, equal measures for sure. Sounds good. All right, so where'd you grow up? I grew up in uh, Merchantville, New Jersey, which usually when no one has ever heard of that, I say Philadelphia, and then I say there's a town called Cherry Hill, of which it surrounds my town of 5,700 people and two traffic lights where I grew up. It surrounds it? Pretty much. Two-thirds of the way surrounds it. There was less than 6,000 people in my hometown. It was the kind of place where you went to the same school from kindergarten through eighth grade, and you did literally walk to and from school every day. Same building, K through eight. Same building, K through eight. And then we switched districts for high school. Okay. And uh, the population was big enough to have more than one building for K through eight, or it wasn't? It was not. There were 35 people in my eighth grade graduating class. So I had the same 35 people in my class for nine years, except for move-ins and move-outs. That gets pretty old, I would imagine. Or awesome. Depending. It's awesome until you change school districts in ninth grade. And even though you didn't move, you're sort of the new kid when, uh, you know, two thirds of your class ended up going to private Catholic high schools. Mm. And then uh, the rest went with you to the next to the public high school that was in the adjacent town. But it's a Jersey public school. Jersey public school. Public school all the way through. College as well. So when you say Philly, you mean Southern Jersey or what I would say is uh, Philly, Jersey. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And exit three for those who want to make that joke, but legit, there Perfect. are there are gardens, in fact, in the Garden State. I know exactly where that is. The gardens are they're hard to find. They are not hard to find. You if you're to, not looking. Uh, you have to go west, or you have to have really good eyesight, I think, to see the. You have to not be on the turnpike. Okay, fair if you're enough. not on the turnpike, there are actually lots of gardens in South Jersey. South Jersey, in particular, maybe not north Northern Jersey. That's true. There's lots of smokestacks and uh, sopranos in North Jersey. Lot, so the mob and industry. <laughs> I mean, I can't speak for the mob, but rumor has it, yes. All right, so but you consider yourself a Jersey kid and a Philly kid. I do, and uh, and the same for both, right? You have equal pride in both, right? I do. I uh, I take offense with the turnpike joke, but I turn <laughs> it into a joke back. And uh, as a fan of you know four for four sp- Philly sports, I've I've dealt with the slings and arrows all my life, so it's sort of like a badge of honor, like most Philadelphia sports. All fans. right, let, let's start there. All you right. and I are both sports fans. I am a random fan. I, I like teams from all over the country because I'm from Virginia. There are no pro sports teams here. There's no real allegiance to any team, whether it's Washington-based, Charlotte-based, Atlanta, whatever. You are loyal Philly, and Philly has the big four. Uh, they have a football team, basketball, baseball, and hockey. I don't know anything about hockey, so we don't really need to touch hockey. Philadelphia doesn't know anything about hockey. Either. Yeah, nice, <laughs> nice. <laughs> Let's start with football. The Eagles won a Super Bowl recently. Does that – overcome all the uh, shortcomings in prior seasons it so i was born in 72 the phillies won the world series in 1980 the sixers won the championship in 83 i was not yet a basketball fan in 83 so from 1983 to 2008 you have 25 years times four teams is 100 years of losing of losing in a way that like no chance of 
getting close to a championship or just not winning a championship. There were a few final sniffs in there. There was the you know, the, the Wheeze kids, the Philadelphia Phillies in 83 made the World Series. There were some finals for the for the Sixers against the Lakers. There were some finals, but uh, effectively no championships. And when I say losing, the Philadelphia Phillies, fun fact, which I believe is still true, they are the losingest professional franchise in the history of the planet. But that's partially born of the fact they've been around for a really long time. They've been around since like 1880, so yes. But it's also born of a lot of losing and choking and blowing leads and just not being very good at the sport of baseball. So when your teams get into the playoffs, you're like, yep, there's no way this ends well for us. I try to not take the fatalistic attitude. I enjoy the ride. I love the playoffs. If we make it, I'm like, cool, anything can happen, any given Sunday type of thing. And to your point about the Eagles winning a Super Bowl, they proved it, right? Like, who would think that you're... Your MVP caliber quarterback goes down. You've got a backup in, and that's going to, you know, he's going to be the guy to take you to a, a championship, the first championship. So it's a pretty cool um, story. Yeah. So I, I try to take the, you know, enjoy the ride, glass half full. And, and that was an awesome year. That was, that was an awesome ride. And so I listen to a lot of Philadelphia sports talk radio, like driving to work and, and so on and so forth. And I mean, the whole town practically was crying. There were people with relatives that thought they were going to die before they ever saw. It's like the Cubs winning in baseball. It, it yeah. really was. Yeah. It was like they, the Eagles or their predecessor, had won before the Super Bowl era, and then you had just years and years of devastation. You had, you know, Jaworski's Eagles blowing it to the Raiders. You had Donovan McNabb, who may or may not have thrown up in the huddle against the uh, the Patriots from nerves. From from nerves, right? And you know, rumor confirmed, whatever. And then you finally had Nick Foles, of all people, taking over Carson Wentz, you know, finally ending the curse. Perennial backup, kid from Texas, no real connection to Philly. And it was awesome. It was an awesome ride. All right, so, and look, I, I'm indifferent to the Eagles. I, I was happy that they won because they hadn't won in so long. They, they were what I would call a long-term underdog yep. to, to get to that place. Uh, but they imploded almost immediately after that season. In a miraculous way. <laughs> I mean, Just like it, Philadelphia sports in a way that's never been done before. I mean, Peterson is saying crazy things and let it, and making silly decisions that Doug Peterson is not that dumb. The decisions he was making at the end of his last season, he was telling the front office, I don't want to be here anymore. Do you have any clue why he didn't want to be there anymore? Because he just won a championship two years earlier. The whole, I mean, the whole thing baffles me. Uh, I've been commuting a lot, so I haven't listened to as much Philadelphia, you know, talk radio to find out what the conspiracy theories are around that. But I mean, to watch Doug Peterson, who was a gunslinger at heart when he joined, you know, when he first became the coach, going for it on fourth down, you know, trick plays, like the whole nine, right? We put up with, I'll say, Andy Reid for 16 or 17 years, the head coach. It's a long time. You know, and, and he, he took us to four NFC Championship games, one Super Bowl, which we lost. But he was around for 16 years. He never learned clock management. Never? He, never learned he still the, doesn't know it. No. That never learned the value of the run game. Um, and But he managed to stick around for 16 years. The only guy to give us a Super Bowl championship seemed to have, like, absolutely no honeymoon period at all after it. Um, now, as lousy as last year was, I I would have given him more time. Yeah, absolutely. But but I don't run the team. I have a billion dollars or four billion dollars to buy the team. So yeah, let's just say that you and I don't have enough combined money to make those decisions. <laughs> uh, but I, there's something happened in the middle of that season, or at some point in the season, where he said, "I don't want to be here anymore." And I don't know what it is. I don't know if it was he was negotiating for more money, and it just wasn't working out. But maybe we'll never know exactly what happened. But I've never seen a coach just kind of give up being so close to winning a championship. It was bizarre. And I mean, he should, you know, he would have known what the Philadelphia sports fan, and I'm giving air quotes like people can see it, is like. I mean, he was a quarterback in Philadelphia. He worked on Andy Reid's staff. So, I mean, he knew what Philly was about. And 
arguably should have had a pass for the rest of his life. He's in a bar. You buy him a beer from here until the day he dies. If he's yeah. in Philadelphia. He's so anywhere near happened. Philly. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, the, you know, putting up with a lot of losing over 25 years, we actually moved to California when my kids were, I think, in kindergarten and first grade. And, you know, I said to them, like, look, the Philadelphia teams always have to be our number one teams. But I understand if you want to adopt any of the local teams out in California. So my daughter, they're, they're like, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so my daughter took me up on that. And it just so happened that it was the very beginning of the Warriors run. Nice. So she doesn't, she has no idea, you know, what Philadelphia basketball and, you know, certain highly paid folks we have who might turn down uh, dunks or shoot 30% from the free throw line in a key. Wide open series. layups. Doesn't yeah. know what that's like. She knows Steph Curry and Durant and Clay Thompson and Draymond and, 70 wins and championship after championship. And they won, what, three and four years? I think it was I think you're right. Yeah, I think they won three and four. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because the last one was with uh, Durant. Right. Yeah, it's so great, said, great timing playing, on your daughter's part. Yeah, I said, if they play the Sixers, though, you got to root for the Sixers. She's like, no, I don't. I'm like, I kind of do. You really do, yeah. yeah. You do. If you like, you know, eating our food and living in our house, you yeah, do. Yeah, the, the only out I give my daughters who, who tend to like the team that my wife likes, which are – Northern Jersey, New York-based team, so Yankees, Giants, that kind of thing. They can like them because I'm married to her, but anything outside of my wife or mine, they they can't do it. We we won't allow it. Perfect. But you're if we good, you're a good dad, but if we move to Tampa Bay, they might be Tampa Bay fans, but they're Giants fans. It's, <laughs> it's too bad. All right, so the the Eagles. Let's talk Sixers a little bit. We, you mentioned them uh, some without saying names. Uh, what was the th- MB? What was it called? Uh, the process. The process. Is the process over? He has now adopted the process as his nickname. But so, he, it was more than him, wasn't it? Yeah, it was the, It was three or four or five, 27 years of losing on purpose to get, you know, to get more balls in the in the lottery and then hopefully get a better draft pick. We blew most of those picks. Embiid himself, as much of a monster as he is, when he he's was healthy. injured when he started. Yeah, he was and injured a lot. And he's been injured a lot, as have... You know, we had uh, Marquette, Markel Fultz, who what was there? top draft pick and got he got a case of the Willies, potentially, right? Kind of like Simmons at the po- post-college, around the draft time, he gets the case of the Willies. Yeah. yeah. Like, like he couldn't shoot a jumper. It's kind of a, a plague, it seems, of the process. But since Embiid has taken that as his nickname, uh, I think the process will live on, live on as long as he does in Philadelphia. Yeah, and so what's going to happen with Simmons? I have to ask. I believe he's going to be traded, but you know the asking price seems to be too high right now. You're going to, at best case, Philly gets like a tenth guy. Best case, tenth out of twelve. You're not going to get a starter anywhere. We'll get a starter. We're not going to get an all star in return. You'll you'll get a starter who can shoot jumpers, and that's all he does, kind of thing. Right. And so then the question is that is that enough? I don't think the answer the answer is no. Who else is on the team besides Embiid? Simmons is gone. Who else is on that team? Uh, Tobias Harris is on the team. He's a nice player, but he doesn't like shooting in the fourth quarter either. Uh, true. You know, we let uh, we let Jimmy go down to Miami. Yeah, and, and they did well. Yeah, and we actually let a lot of our shooters kind of walk. It's weird. Yeah, and actually to make room for Tobias' contract, I believe. Tobias I'm, is a nice player. He's a really good player in the first three quarters. I'm not a capologist, not a Sixers fan, but certainly or I am a Sixers fan, but not like, you know, in-depth as far as like the roster end-to-end, but... Um, the, the way it ended this past year with all the promise, the number one seed, the stars lined up as far as getting every team at home, an easy path through the East, a weekend West, like the stars were aligned. And unfortunately, we just didn't capitalize on it this year. And they ended up losing to the Hawks. Correct. I mean, they were f- fifth seed, whatever. The, uh, seedings don't mean that much in the NBA. 
but the fact that the Hawks beat them, like that may be one of Astounding. the Astounding. Because you're right, the, the stars aligned. Assuming that Simmons doesn't get the willies, they crushed the Hawks. For sure. They absolutely I remember. Them. Who was the, was the guy's name who took us apart? I completely forget. The point guard for, yeah. for Atlanta. I, don't remember his I name. can't remember his name. We're yeah. looking at, uh, Bill and I are looking at Silent Rob. Do you remember the point guard? Trey uh, Young. There you go. Trae Thank Young. you. Trey. You saved him from Googling it. Yes. He is our crack <laughs> research staff as well. All right. Uh, let's spend about 10 seconds on the Phillies because that's all they okay. really deserve. What was the last time they Bryce were Bryce Harper, $330 million, currently on a five-game win streak. Go Phillies. Oh, really? All right, is that nice. seven seconds? Yeah, that's good. <laughs> uh, I forgot Bryce was on the Phillies. Yeah. Uh, didn't the Nationals win just after he went to Philly? As a matter of fact, they did. So, you know, get rid of our best hitter and then win a World Series. Yeah, yeah that's amazing. Yeah. He's He's been a great Philly, though. I think he came into the he came into the city with a great attitude. He adopted, uh, you know, the, the hometown fans really kind of, you know, gathered and rallied around him. He took to the, to the fans. He's been, you know, that's a long contract and a lot of money. I'm sure the back end years aren't going to be great, but he's he's been great to have in the city as a Philadelphia uh, Philly sports fan. Uh, I enjoy having him on the team. Yeah, if, if you're going to spend that much money, you at least want him to be a good guy for the fans. He's a good guy for the fans. He's always wearing, like, you know, fanatic socks or he'll come out, and, you know, decked out in fanatic gear. And he's just really, he gives back to the community. It seems to be an all-around, like, good fit for Philadelphia. No, that's great. And uh, he was basically playing in the majors as, what, a 19-year-old? Yeah. So he, he was maturing as a major leaguer. Yeah. And most of those guys don't mature in a way that they're super supportive in the city that they play for. Right. Especially when they make that kind of money. Especially. Yeah, no, that's amazing. That's that's cool. I didn't know that about Bryce. I didn't know much about him. I knew he could hit, hit the heck out of a baseball, but that was all I really oh, yeah. knew about him. Yeah, and he's on a tear. He's actually, you know, when the Phillies were briefly in first place about two weeks ago before they decided to lose seven out of nine games to a team that was like 50 games under 500. That happens to every like, team during the season. There yeah. was talk of him for MVP this year. So, I mean, he's having oh, that wow. kind of year. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. All right, let's go away from sports. Well, I don't know. Did you play sports in high school? Baseball. Okay. Yeah. Right. So. Second base pitcher pitched until my arm fell off, and then I had to move to a, the shortest throw in the field, which was second base. So when you pitched, were you what was your best pitch? Uh, control, curveball. I had great control. I wasn't a hard thrower. Nobody can see me, but I'm not a big guy. Uh, so not a lot of mass behind my pitches, but good control. So a poor man's Greg Maddox kind of thing? Yeah, really poor man's Greg Maddox. <laughs> <laughs> but Maddox could put it wherever he wanted. Correct. He had, he had two or three good pitches that he could put wherever he wanted. As could I. Minus the half a billion dollars in the Hall of Fame. So and, he, and he might have had a few miles per hour on whatever pitch he was throwing than what you had. Or or a well-moving car, yes. Wow. <laughs> like 50 miles an hour. No, more. you didn't have a fit. Come on. <laughs> what, what, what was your fastest fastball? It was probably in the mid-70s. That's, that's solid. Yeah. For high school pitching, that's great. For, yeah. Not so good for the majors, unless you're Jamie Moyer and get lucky. And Jamie Moore was a lefty, right? I have no idea. I think Moore was a lefty. I should know. And so lefties have this weird, they, they pitch well with this looping curveball kind of thing. Yeah. I imagine I, your curveball was not looping. It, it was good. It was not looping. And to throw left-handed, I have to actually stop and think about how to do that. So Right. Yeah. Pro- probably not going to go places <laughs> no, with that. definitely not. Was your curveball 12 to 6? Or was it uh, more like three-quarter arm kind of It was curveball? three-quarter arm. Yeah. Yeah. No less effective, though. No, it was, it was, it was solid. Could you hit the ball? Uh, I have a small strike zone, so I didn't see a lot of strikes. I got on base a lot via the walk. <laughs> Your coach is probably really happy with that. They were fine. They're like, you're going to get on base anyway. So unless it's awesome, go ahead and take it. Yeah, nice. like, I will do that. So you walked what? Roughly half the time? A lot. Wow. A lot. Isn't that boring? It's fun to be on base. That's fair. It's, it is boring not to swing the bat, but you kind of get that out of you in batting practice. Okay. 
Yeah. It's a good way to think about it. Yeah. So were you considered a jock in high school? No. Were you considered nerdy or just kind of an all-around? Sort of average, yeah. yeah. Not not a nerd or not identified with the nerds, not identified with the jocks. I didn't play football. You had to be playing football to be a jock. I, th- I think you have to play football or basketball to be a jock. Right. Or both. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so when you were 15, what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? I probably thought I was going to be a computer programmer, I guess, when I was 15 or own my own business. Were you programming as a teenager? Like back in the day of, of like what was available, like I think it was like the Texas Instruments, you know, whatever basic language. So yeah, I started taking some programming courses in, in high school and thought that, that might be the path forward, uh, if not owning my own business or somehow comboing the two. Did you ever combo the two? I did not. Nope. So I, I stayed with computer programming up until college and then went to college as, as an engineering uh, major and then graduated college as an econ major. That happens to a lot of people. It, it, so my freshman year at Penn State, they said, look to your left, look to your right. One of those people isn't going to be there at the end. And that, that person was me uh, graduating <laughs> the, with an the econ guy, The degree. guys on either side of you, that you were the one. <laughs> they were like, hey, yeah. that, guy, that guy drew the short straw. Sweet. We get to be engineers. He gets to be an economist. But you could have. So what got in the way of you getting an engineering degree? Uh, so, Without revealing too much, because your kids may listen to this someday. So one of the things that... Uh, you know, I appreciate the sense of responsibility and, you know, delayed gratification, everything my parents taught me as a kid, uh, but they were pretty strict. And so when I went from New Jersey to Penn State, uh, main campus, I had a sophomore as a roommate. I was in the only co-ed dorm. At he the, knew where everything was. He knew where everything was. He had connections to all of the parties. I was in the only co-ed dorm at Penn State at the time, and we had all of the military returning adult students on the first floor. So we had a whole bunch of people who are 21 years and older on the first floor. That's a disaster who, way to happen. Who would get you whatever you wanted as long as you invited them to whatever party it was you were going to. Sure. So um, I went a little bit maybe crazier than I should have when I first went to Penn State. You were a caged animal in high school. I was a caged animal. I enjoyed my freedom. I also... You know, in high school, had the the good fortune of not needing to study really hard and still get good grades, and I took those awesome study habits with me to college, and uh, I did well my first couple of semesters, which was probably the worst thing that could have happened to me. I made dean's list in engineering, not going to class, not doing a lot of studying, Ooh. and so I'm like, cool, this is going to be just like high school. And then when you take the second level of your engineering classes, like engineering mechanics and Calc two and everything Chem two, everything that follows behind. Uh, the lights come on really quick, and I was revealed as a cockroach trying to stay in engineering. Yeah, and it makes you wonder why uh, in a lot of countries, especially in the developed world, they let 18-year-olds go to college. And, and maybe they, like you did, they get by the first year or mm-hmm. so, but eventually it's going to get harder, and it's going to catch up to you. You can't be this uncaged wild animal uh, and have bad study habits and essentially no discipline, and you shouldn't get a really hard degree like that. And so maybe 23-year-olds should be freshmen in college, not 18. I would say that the folks who are joining, who are going to Penn State from the military after having you know taken that route, they were much more serious students than a lot of us up on the eighth floor of Tenor Hall were. Yeah, so as, as a, uh, an adult who pays for a kid to go to college, I'm about to have another one to start college. I'm like, I want you to do other things for the next three or four years, and then, then we'll talk about college. But they're like, but dad, all of my friends are going to college. And I'm like, okay. So one of the things that you know frustrated me at the time, but now I'm actually doing it with my own kids, is my parents had me save. So I've had a job since I was eight years old, You know, whether it was mowing lawns or working in grocery stores or delivering newspapers, whatever it was. So I had to save 
75% of everything I earned for college. Um, and then they would match it. And th- that was their rule. That was their rule. And so, and I did that, you know, so my friends. That's a, that's a great rule. Well, I hated it at the time, of course, because my friends are going to concerts or they're buying video games or, you know, whatever it is they're doing that's a lot more fun than sticking it in a dark hole that you're not going to see for right. 15 years. But I ultimately came to appreciate it significantly when I was paying my way through college and therefore was very motivated to be done in four years instead of five or six or seven. Um, and so I've taken maybe not quite as hard a line with my own kids, but a path of like, here are the things that you're working for. Here are the things you're saving money for because, you know, if they learn the value of a dollar and how hard and how long it takes to earn one, I think they'll they'll value it more. And so um, I'm taking a similar approach, if not like locked in at 75% like I was. Yeah, 75% seems extreme. There's a lot, especially when you're not earning much. Right. <laughs> Right. So it's not just putting money away and not seeing it again for a while. It's also cutting a lot of grass and it's doing all the other things you had to do to earn the money in the first place. A lot of sweat, a lot of dirt, a lot of blowing black stuff out of your nose from having breathed dust all day, you know, mowing lawns. Yeah. It put hair in your chest probably though. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So you're, you're looking at colleges and you're thinking Penn State because you're from that part of the world. Uh, you probably grew up a Penn State fan, I'm guessing. I did. My parents both went to Penn State. Okay. So no pressure though. I actually... I. Did a small college tour. I actually looked at schools up in Boston because I always loved the city of Boston. Boston's a cool town. It's an awesome town. And I, you know, I love Fenway Park as a, as a baseball fan. I like Wrigley. I like Fenway. I like kind of all the old school parks. So I loved the city of Boston. I looked at some schools there. I didn't really, I loved the Penn State campus. Like when I had a picture in my mind of what a college campus was, like just a lot of grass with like some kind of a central building that looks like it does on the postcard like Penn State was that and right. I didn't really find that in in Boston so yeah I applied to two schools Penn State being one of them and you can say the other one uh, MIT was the other one yeah. in Boston in Boston yeah uh, and so even though my parents were both Penn State grads there was no like pressure you have to go to Penn State or anything like that yeah and it's weird Boston I think Boston suffers like a lot of old cities do various decades kind of dictate the architecture and they Nobody's really thinking about what the world would look like in 1982 or 2002. And so you just have this hodgepodge of stuff piled up on top of each other. And every campus, whether it's Harvard, MIT, or Boston College, they all kind of look like that. And they all felt like they were part of the city. You couldn't tell where the city stopped and the campus ended, except for I think Boston College was one that was sort of separated and felt like its own campus. Right. And the other things I remember about the the college tour that we did was, one, it was raining like crazy, and we were walking around the city streets barefoot which tells you sort of how clean just the city of Boston is in general. Right. But the other less fun thing is my dad was driving because in Jersey you have to be 17, so I wasn't 17 yet, to drive. All these one-way streets that change direction on you as you're driving down one way, one way, one way, er, it's like one way the other way. Yeah, if you're not used to that. Yeah, Yeah. so that felt like it might be painful to deal with. Yeah, but that wasn't the deciding factor. It was not. Yeah. It was not. <laughs> was the, What was the deciding factor? Uh, so I had a uh, ROTC scholarship when I started, uh, and so uh, I was waitlisted at MIT, so I didn't get in on the first go, uh, and so I applied at MIT or MIT and Penn State for early admission. Uh, they both had ROTC programs. I think MIT's shared it with other schools. Penn State's was self-contained, so um, by the time I heard back from MIT later on, I was sort of committed and all in on Penn State, thought the ROTC program, the way it was set up. It, all of the, you know, um, just all of the facilities for that were all out towards the stadium, which was where I was going to be living in the dorms, which is where they put all the freshmen way out 
by Beaver Stadium, which doesn't mean anything to a non-Penn State grad, but Penn State's a massive university, about two miles, uh, you know, big. And a so, ton, of, ton of kids. Yeah. Ton of kids, 50,000 kids, you know, running around. So it was just, it felt like it was better set up. And, you know, once you've sort of made a decision, your mind has a lot of momentum behind it. And that was the case. Yeah, especially for the 18-year-old or 17-year-old right. mind. Although my first two weeks there, I think it rained every day and it was like cold, like 39-degree rain in August somehow. Was like, it, yeah, it wasn't November yet. It was ridiculous. <laughs> I'm like... I called my mom and dad. I'm like, why did you not tell me that Penn State was like this? I was ready to go anywhere else. But I eventually stayed, and it was good. You have fond memories, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. And I stayed in town for three years after I graduated in my first job. So you really liked it? Yeah, yeah. All right, well, tell, tell me before the three years after college, what are your fondest memories of Penn State? Uh, I mean, I think home football weekends were, you know, certainly fond memories. everything, right? You know, I had lots of friends who didn't go to Penn State who would come up and see me, so – you know, having just seeing that line of traffic. So I lived out as a freshman out in East Halls, which is, as I said, within viewing range of the stadium and all of the surrounding fields where they would do the tailgates and just starting as early as possible on a Friday, you just start to see the lines of traffic coming in and the tailgates starting to go up. It was just, you know, uh, Penn State, I think, becomes the third biggest city in Pennsylvania on a home football weekend. And so those were, you know, incredible. That's, cr- that's crazy to think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so one of my fond memories is even I say it's fond and I'm going to mess part of it up, but I believe it was Notre Dame that we beat at home. And so a bunch of us went out to the stadium and grabbed the goalposts and we put them on Joe Paterno's lawn. <laughs> both goal, goalposts? Just one. Okay. We, we One's carried, plenty. We, <laughs> he didn't need both of them. He's not going to have practice at his house. But no, so Joe, Joe Paterno was well, famous. Well, hold on, hold on. You're going to say he didn't, didn't need practice at his house. What did he need with one goalpost? <laughs> well, that, that was a souvenir. That oh, was, got it. That got was a it. token of our appreciation <laughs> right. for beating, I'm pretty sure it was Notre Dame. Thanks, Coach. Here's yeah, the goalpost. Here you go. Now you got to get somebody to put it back over there at Beaver Stadium. Yeah, Joe, Joe didn't do that, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. No, so he was famous for uh, for walking to the field for all practices, for game days, for whatever. I mean, he lived, I don't know, it was probably half a mile, three quarters of a mile away. So, yeah, a bunch of us thought it was a great idea to give him a token of our appreciation. And he also taught history there forever. Yeah, and they named, named the library after him. He was also notorious for not, you know, maximizing the his earning potential and giving a lot back to the university. All, all around, really good guy for that community. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. All right, so you mentioned uh, three years you stayed there after college. What were you doing after college? So my first job was with uh, a company called MBNA, which at the time was the largest independent credit card issuer in the world. Uh, before it got bought by Bank of America, had like $120 billion credit card portfolio. Well, they had a call center in State College, and I started there uh, in my last semester at Penn State as an outbound telemarketing representative, calling people trying to- It's a hard gig. Get them, get them to sign up for the Penn State credit card, or you know, we, we were focused, that center was focused on colleges and universities, so Penn State pioneered the affinity credit card marketing model, so we had relationships with a ton of colleges and universities. And because Penn State was the only one of, call it 12, um, call centers that was located in a college town, we of course called the Penn State card because you have that instant sort of rapport of telling the person on the other end of the phone, hey, I'm calling you from State College. It's Do you brilliant. want to have the Penn State card, right? Yeah. Uh, but we focused on college and universities, and I started there in my last semester. Uh, as I was getting ready to graduate, a manager position came open. I interviewed for it. Uh, and so I was actually interviewing to be a stockbroker at the same time, mm. ended up getting both offers. And as good fortune would have it, I did take the MBA managerial position because if I had gone with the company as a stockbroker, they were out of business within a year due to some SEC violation of some sort. Stockbroker in New York? Uh, Jersey. Okay. Cherry Hill. 
again. Oh, nice. Yeah. Going back home. Yeah. All right. And so you did that, you worked for MBNA for three years in State College? Yeah, so I was with MBNA for 10 years from 94 to 04, but I was I was there in State College moving up through the, the managerial ranks for three years before moving on to, uh, I think it was insurance services or one of the other divisions and areas of the company. Uh, so corporate America, especially banks or credit card companies like that, they're, they're big and bureaucratic and they're good in a lot of ways, but they're not so great in other ways. Uh, did you see yourself being in that environment for the rest of your career? So MBNA was a great place for someone with an entrepreneurial mindset um, in that one, it was notorious for not keeping you in a position for more than about 18 months. They really wanted people to kind of rotate around the company and get, you know, get a flavor for a, you know, a variety of different things. And so I tended to gravitate towards you know, new product launches or new partnerships or new geographies that were being opened. Um, so having an entrepreneurial mindset, I didn't necessarily envision myself selling credit cards, you know, over the phone outbound or managing sure. teams that did the same. Uh, that wasn't my dream as, you know, 15 year old Bill in Merchantville, New Jersey. Uh, but the company treated people really well, had a great, you know, customer first kind of a mindset. And so as a company, it was a great place to work. And I think most people, so it was the biggest employer in Delaware. Um, and I think most of the people, they're still a very tight knit community in Delaware, which is a small city, I mean state, um, <laughs> that really remember fondly their time at, at MBNA as a company. So when you say entrepreneur, uh, were you doing anything on the side? Did you have a side hustle back then? I did have a side hustle back then. I was I started investing in real estate, uh, which, which ultimately became full time at a certain point. But uh, so I was working full-time in Penn State and I had, you know, I was living with three roommates that I had known from obviously being in town and the building that we were living in or the unit that we were living in went up for sale while we lived there. And so I, you know, did the calculations on what the mortgage would be. So I'm like, oh, that'd be kind of cool to, you know, own my own place or whatever. And have these guys pay me rent. And have these guys pay me rent. And yeah. I said, well, wait a second, the mortgage on this place would be, call it seven, $800, including taxes, insurance, everything. My roommates and I were paying the landlord 1600 bucks. So the Delta was like 2X, it was like 800 bucks. I'm like, how do I get me some of this? Right. So I uh, started at that time, you know, looking around to buy real estate and start getting into the rental properties. And so I uh, started out enlisting a couple of folks I worked with at MBNA. We put some money in a pot and uh, bought, uh, we ended up buying, you know, some student housing at Penn State. Did you uh, manage the property yourselves too? While we lived in town, and while and until the last of us left town, we did manage it ourselves. And then after we left town, we there's you know plenty of professional property uh, property managers in town, and we so we enlisted them after the last of us moved out. And the cost is reasonable, especially if you're not going to be in town and you don't want to have to come back to town to do any sort of maintenance yeah. It was or really else. reasonable. Penn State's in the middle of nowhere. Like as great a place as Penn State is, and everything you need is right there. I mean, it has everything because there's fifty thousand students there. But there's nothing for three hours until you get to Philly, three hours until you get to Pittsburgh. So um, there's really no reason to go there except for a home football game. So if you own property there, you don't really want to go there to change a light bulb or unplug a toy. Yeah, you want to be there to tailgate and watch a football game. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Any uh, fun stories from being a real estate guy? <laughs> uh, I guess there's a few. So um, so I, I mentioned that I, I worked for uh, for MBNA from, from 94 to 04, and ultimately you know, build up the, the real estate uh, portfolio to I had about 200 uh, units. In Holy the portfolio. cow. Um, and also started doing some development. This was just you? 
it was me. And so I had a couple of different LLCs with different partners. So I had a portfolio that was mine. I had portfolio that I had with uh, a business partner who I worked with, who was an executive M- at MBNA. Um, and then a couple of the other folks, uh, the first ones that I mentioned, when we bought the Penn State housing. So it was a combo um, of, of folks that sort of, we had that 200 unit portfolio. That seems like a lot of units. It was a lot of units and unfortunately realized sort of in trying to manage those across Wilmington, Delaware, Penn State, the Outer Banks, you know, the Jersey Shore, that good property management is exceedingly hard to find. So we'll come back to that in a second. Uh, All those seem to fit with your background except the Outer Banks. So the Outer Banks, again, sort of, you know, opportunistic in the way it happened. A guy that I was working with at MBNA in State College, he and his family were going on vacation in this place called the Outer Banks, which I'd actually never even heard of. Yeah, of course you had. Maybe surprisingly. And they're like, hey, do you want to come along? I'm like, sure. Sounds great. So I went along. And similar to the story about the house that we were living in at Penn State going up for sale, we're staying in an oceanfront property. It was like an eight-bedroom, seven-bath house in Nags Head. That's how they roll down there. Yeah, Yeah, they're huge. Um, The house next to us went up for sale. And I always sort of have been like a real estate voyeur, if you will, just like to look at open houses and see what's out there. And you see can't what the pass one. Is. No, I love it. I love looking at them. You know, just <laughs> what's going on there? What, you know, decor ideas, landscaping ideas. I think you noticed I took some pictures you of did. your beautiful you, backyard. You were the first one to do that. Yeah. So, you know, put myself in a corner there. Yeah, you did. Uh, the house next door went up and I, and I was convinced before going on that vacation that you couldn't possibly buy a beach property without it costing you money every month. I was convinced that I was used to positive cash flow property. That's what I looked for is, you know, you have multiple units, you have multiple chances to actually collect rent so that you can pay your mortgage and all the other bills. And so I was like, there's no way that you could find a beach property that pays for itself. So fast forward to go on vacation in the Outer Banks, the house next to us for sale. I do a walkthrough and I get the real estate, the rental projections from the from the uh, real estate agent. And I was like, holy cow, this thing actually pays for itself. And the reason why it pays, why it could pay for itself down there is the season, the season that we got from our houses was 30 to 35 weeks a year. Mm. So we would be booked from Easter, wherever it fell in that particular year, all the way through New Year's. So that trip started where we bought, a, we bought two or three properties in the first year, starting with one we put an offer on as a result of that vacation, bought a couple more the following year, and then held them for 20 years until you know ultimately selling out. But that's like a six plus hour drive. From where you lived, that was part of the ra- the reason for selling out. It's, you know, thirty hurricanes last year will sort of scare you straight if you own a bunch of houses that are sitting on a barrier island that literally juts out into the. It ocean. Basically, dares the oceans coming from the Atlantic to to hit it, and the ocean takes that dare very frequently. A lot, yeah, yeah routinely, yeah. So much so that maybe you never buy beachfront property in that part of the world. Uh, it's it's beautiful beach property. The houses have a lot of amenities. I got married on the on the beach huh. in the Outer Banks. You know, we actually had the destination wedding. Put all of our you know friends and family up in the houses that we had, and so on and so forth. So well, I mean, that's I, great. Yeah. I love the Outer Banks. It's um, it's very laid back compared to the Jersey Shore. You can have a bonfire on the beach. You can drive on the beach. It's just there's there's less density. There's really only one or two houses sharing any stretch of beach. So I love it there. Right. But after twenty years. And becoming more and more of an absentee landlord and realizing that, you know, if it's six hours away, you're not going down there for the weekend. You're not going down there for a four-day weekend. You sort of need to make an intentional effort to take off of work and go down there for a full week. And so that coupled with, you know, sort of 
having done it for 20 years, again, being more absentee, just some frustrations that had accumulated uh, about owning the property and just kind of seeing what happened to them. The ocean pounds them, uh, the elements pound them. Uh, I was kind of, I was done with the maintenance and figured that uh, the last year was an incredible uh, real estate market. And so figured that was a good opportunity to take advantage of a great market and, and exit the Outer Banks. As yeah, a, so no regrets uh, from that. Uh, pangs here and there. I mean, it sort of becomes part of your identity. Like being like my email address is OBX Walker. So like uh, it's, we got, I mentioned my wife and I got married on the beach before our kids were in school. We would spend, you know, four to eight weeks a year down there, mm. usually in September and October, which we weren't giving up a lot of rent, but it was a beautiful time to be there. So it becomes part of your identity. So, I mean, I still have pangs of like, wow, I kind of, do I need to check the rental stats today? No, because you don't own anything there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> have you been down there since you sold? No, we were down there as we were prepping to sell. We had sort of our last hurrah in the last house, but no, I have not been back. Will you go back? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And, if, and so now the, the decision is, do we rent one of the houses that we owned or do we try something new? I try something new. I don't know. Hmm. That's sentimental, huh? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't think I'd be that sentimental. But then again, I haven't owned that many properties anywhere. Yeah. I'm not usually that mushy, but there, there's uh, at least one house in particular that my wife and I bought together that, that we'll miss. We miss it. Yeah. Yeah. You might buy it again someday? No. Okay. <laughs> we're gonna, we've, we've decided uh, that the criteria for buying a new place, if we're going to get a new vacation property, uh, is that it's going to be on a lake probably. And we'd love it to be within three hours of our house, even preferably two. So we've, we've drawn a radius around where we live and we're on, you know, my wife's on a bunch of you know, watch list to see what might be available in the Poconos or some of the lakes and or rivers actually potentially, which you're kind of familiar with. I am familiar with that. And lakes and rivers typically, well, not all rivers, but definitely lakes mean no hurricanes typically, at least not severe damage. There's no hurricanes. Uh, You can usually get four seasons out of it. Uh, Yeah, there's there's a lot to like about and there's no salt water, salt spray, like the, the lifespan of an HVAC unit in the Outer Banks on our oceanfront properties if you got to five years, you salt were, air is brutal. Oh my god, you're high fiving if you got to five years. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Like, and so the other decision factor was we got to the point where we had owned them for twenty years, where we were going to have to. I think the people that bought them from us easily put a quarter million dollars into each of the two ocean fronts. They did re- redid all the windows, all of the siding. We had already done the roof, we'd done a lot of the interior, but it was at that point in time where it's like, okay keep them and make those massive capital improvements and deal with all of the contractors and everything else from six hours away, or, you know, take your money and put it in something a little more passive. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. As the older I get, the uh, passive income sounds better to me. It's, it's, uh, it's passive. Yes. <laughs> What's not to like about that? Yeah, exactly. It's income and it's passive. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. Uh, any uh, fun customer or renter stories, I should say? Uh, so I, I will give you two FBI stories, which I guess okay. most real estate investors don't get to tell. Yeah. Um, two FBI stories. Two FBI I didn't see stories. the first one coming. No, we, no, we I didn't see two. the first one coming either. <laughs> and, and my partner, fortunately, didn't have to deal with, with either of these either. Um, so they both are somewhat anticlimactic, and maybe it's not good for your podcast ratings for me to it's say a, that it's all good. Well, you're not going to hurt my podcast but, ratings. You're fine. <laughs> I'll intro the fact that, yeah, most real estate investors at the Jersey Shore don't get to deal with the FBI, let alone twice. Well, I had the pleasure of dealing with it twice. So we had a, uh, a mixed-use building that was on the boardwalk in Wildwood. So typical structure in Wildwood, you've got like a parking level that's underneath the boardwalk. Then you have storefronts at boardwalk level. And then you have residential above. 
So we had a building that we were waiting for about three years to get approval from the state of New Jersey to be able to build higher. So there was a, a building just like ours, two blocks further north on the boardwalk where they had gotten approvals from the state of New Jersey, enviro environmental protection, all the necessary regulatory alphabet All bodies, the go go governmental silliness. All that yeah. stuff, right? So they went two floors higher with two floor townhouse units. They sold each for a million bucks. Wow. Times four, right? So the, the economics were just insane. And we got one of those, so we were thrilled. And then we got into the bureaucracy of state of New Jersey, which is a joke when it's the DMV, and it's not a joke when you own a lot of real estate that really can't carry itself on the rent that's existing. You need to develop it to make your money. So we're waiting out the uh, Department of Environmental Protection. And so this particular building had a sprinkler system in it, right? Mm, yep. And so you know the sprinkler system was old and cranky. And so I had, you know, my cell phone number, which I've also kept for forever because of the real estate business. I wanted people to be able to find me. Well, probably twice a year in, in the winter, I'd get a call from the North Wildwood Fire Department. Not a good call. When I see that number coming across, I'm like, well, they're not calling to usually ask me for a fundraiser. They're calling for something that is a phone call I don't want to take. But if I don't take it, bad shit's about to happen. So we have your, um, your sprinkler system is held back. Basically, it's charged. It's ready to go when, when, when it gets triggered. And it's held back by something called a jockey pump. Okay. Well, our jockey pump failed. And so the whole, the sprinkler system in the whole building. Just let go. Just let go. So there's like water just streaming out of our building onto the beach. You know, it's, it's winter time. So I think it went out because of a power failure, mm. right? And so there's water streaming everywhere. I get the call from North Wildwood Fire Department. They go, they turn off the jockey pump. Awesome. We go down, we check it out. We're like, Wonderful. So we had tenants in the commercial units on the first floor, and they kept all of their inventory there the off season. We let them keep it there so that they could just kind of roll the metal gates up, and, you know, when the new season started. And so we basically realized that we were going to have to do a lot of work to basically repair all the water damage that was in there. So this is call it 2006, somewhere in that general neighborhood. So we. Shut all the water down. We're going through the process of trying to remediate everything, get it fixed before the next season starts. So we're tearing down, uh, we're tearing down drop ceilings throughout mm. this entire building. It's four four residential units, four commercial units. We're tearing out um, all of the drop ceilings, and we find stuffed up in one of the drop ceilings uh, or one of the you know tiles in the drop ceiling. We find uh, like aircraft schematics. Oh, what and and. Like flight school plans, right? So this sounds vaguely familiar as it, a military guy, it right? It does, yeah. So, and I'm not there seeing this. I have my, you know, the folks who are doing the work to, to repair the building are telling me what they found. I'm like, oh my God. Like, and of course, you know, New Jersey, we're close to Philly. And I think there was rumors at the time that, you know, they that the 9-11 folks uh, did flight school, like in the New York, New Jersey, sort of that general area, plus Florida, I believe. Mm. Um, and so I just heard about what was there and I, I didn't want any part of it. I said, call the FBI. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we called the FBI. This is maybe it's March or April of that year. So we're closed down for the year, but we're about a month away from opening back up and we needed the rental income to, you know, just to be able to carry the building. And I'm like, great. So I'm basically telling the FBI to go in there. The 9-11 terrorists were here. To, well, to go in and like go through with a fine tooth comb. I mean, I have all kinds of just like evil thoughts going through my head about they're going to seize the building. They're going to spend months and months like ransacking and trying they, to see what else is there. They could have easily done that. Open an investigation, all of that. 
Um, so we, I think there was a, there's an FBI office somewhere near the Jersey shore in South Jersey. So they came out, they looked at it. They ultimately like, they didn't draw like nothing came of it. They basically said it was just like a really weird coincidence of some sort. They're like, there's nothing to see here. Wow. And so I certainly celebrated privately and not privately that, okay, great. I'm going to have the building back and we're going to be able to finish the work and get all of our tenants, you know, commercial and residential back in there. Should they have made something out of it? I don't know. I mean, I think they tracked down the actual perpetrators, right? And, okay. haven't, and nothing's happened since. So That's a weird thing, though. But it was, I mean, it was close enough, right? It might not have even been 05, 06. It was close enough that it was freaky. And as soon as I heard airplane schematics and like, you know, flight plans and, and flight school, I'm like, well, that's, yeah, I don't want any part of this. Let me just, let me just get yeah. the right people in here to take a look at it and step back. I thought like, you were right. going to say a few guns or piles of cash, something. No, like it was at the time, all the articles that you read about the things they found of the the plotters from 9-11, like it was eerily familiar to that. Now, obviously, again, fortunately, it turned out that that wasn't the case, but it freaked us out pretty good at the time. It's freaking me out right now in 2021 just talking to you about it. Yeah. Well, the anniversary is like 10 days away. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, all right. Speaking of piles of cash. You like, to play, uh, you like speaking to play, of you like to play, I, I mentioned you want it. you want uh, FBI oh sorry I forgot, two? I, I forgot there too <laughs> yeah. are, are you are you building is this gonna... no actually I probably should have started with the other one it's, all right, less, it's, all it's less sexy that way I actually made a better story you, you and I are doing an anti-tease right now <laughs> <laughs> uh, so story number two um, this is probably 08 09 so this is in the middle of the housing implosion yeah and so a lot of what happened or a lot of sort of the laws that got passed after the housing implosion centered around um, title companies and appraisers and investors all colluding to, to puff up the, the value of real estate. And then it was using, clearly happening. Right? And then using shell buyers. Yeah. So we were doing real estate development at the Jersey Shore. Uh, we were, you know, we were taking vacant raw land or we were taking land that already had a building on it, knocking it down and building new. We built some, you know, six unit places, eight unit places, duplexes, whatever. And so we had sold probably four or five properties to uh, one investor who was well known around town. We sold them at market rates and I used a realtor. So I had arm's length and like legitimate rates. But it turns out this guy within days of buying from us was turning around and basically reselling to a shell buyer mm. for like a hundred grand more than he bought him from us for. And so that was not me calling the FBI. That was the FBI calling me and saying, Hey, what do you know about this investor guy? What do you know about what he was doing? I'm like, I don't know anything about this investor guy other than that, you know, as far as I know, he's buying, you know, properties in Wildwood and renting them out because the cash flow you know, based on what you were paying for the property and what you could get in rents, the cash flow is good. And I assume that's what he was doing. And it turned out that isn't what he was doing. Uh, he was doing all of those kinds of things, engaging title companies and appraisers and shell buyers and, you know, pocketing a hundred plus thousand dollars per deal, you know, within days of, of buying. Yeah. The 0809, the world was digital enough for the FBI or whoever to have algorithms to be able to catch that stuff pretty easily, I imagine. Yeah. So uh, that those were not things that I expected to get out of my New Jersey yeah, development. FBI twice. Yeah, twice, yeah. Jersey real estate, I can see FBI once. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe maybe that's a reason. I don't, you know, I love the FBI. Kudos to what they do. I don't need to interact with them ever again. That'd be just fine. Yeah, I don't need to ever interact with them, yeah, for sure. It's, it's good. So my pile of cash segue was going to be, speaking of piles of cash, which I brought up. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about poker. Okay. 
Losing piles of cash or, or winning? No, piles I, of cash? I think you're smart enough. And when I say smart enough, I think you can do the math well enough. And I think you can read people well enough that you probably win more than you lose. I enjoy poker. So it's why, good to me. why do you enjoy? Because you win or because uh, there are other aspects that you enjoy? Well, so I do enjoy the social aspects of poker. I, uh, you know, I don't play golf, certainly not reliably or responsibly. So for me, Fortunately, the replacement as far as like business goes and, you know, doing business on the golf course has been poker. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was at Penn State, I had a regular Sunday night game at, uh, at my house uh, that we would have, you know, a revolving cast of eight to 10 people uh, play. Um, it was dealer's choice, which means that, you know, you have 87 wild cards in any given sure. hand and like, you know, two, eight of a kind. Twos wins. and nines are wild. Yeah. Uh, Everything but fours are wild. The whole deck, it's just wild. Five aces wins every time. I have seven aces. Yeah, yeah. so we just had a really fun sort of dealer's choice game. It was on Sunday nights. We'd always have, you know, whatever football game on in the corner. And so had that game going for probably almost two years, and I literally did not hit Mac for those two years. Like, mm-hmm. I was winning enough from that game to just, you know, that got me by all of the food and pocket money that I needed for those couple of years. And that game was so soft, is what they would say. Um, we had a player who invited his dad and his cousin both to this game. So we're talking as many as three out of eight. All of them cheated. <laughs> they all cheated. It's, it's a, it's a, come on, it's a friendly game. Why are you cheating? It's a friendly game. He, he tried. So at the table, he, so he cheated, but he still lost. So we didn't, we didn't even call him out for cheating. Like, we would let him and his family cheat. And lose. Every time. So, it was dealer's choice. So, like, the, the deal goes around the table. Sure. So, they're only dealing three out of eight times. They were so bad that they wouldn't win enough cheating to offset how much they were losing the rest of the time. But they were they were playing so badly that we had, uh, like, a, it wasn't a Wawa. I think it was a Sheets or a Unimart, whatever they, State College is we'll known go, for. We'll Unimart. go Sheets. We'll go Sheets. Yeah. Or, or Unimart. Since yeah. Say it a Mac machine. It was less than a half mile from my house. All right. They, so you're in Virginia now. I'll explain for the uh, Southeast uh, U.S. listeners. <laughs> Mac is Money Access Center as opposed oh to God. an automated, no, automated teller machine. Did I make yeah. myself 50 years old? Uh, or you put yourself in Pennsylvania. All right. it's, it's all good. I'm not 50, so that puts me in Pennsylvania. You're not 50. Yes. Awesome. Um, so we had a place to obtain cash at an I'm automated sure. unit that was open 24 <laughs> hours a day. You're giving us the long name. Right yes. outside of where I lived. And so they would have to hit Mac like multiple times. Like so bad that we would actually tell them to stop playing. We're like, dude, just go eat our food, go drink a beer and go watch the game. Were they just kind of dumb? They just loved playing, and but they were so bad at it. Like we would cut them off. Sometimes we wouldn't invite them because we're like, we just can't invite them. We can't. Like keep taking their money. I can't think of anything that I'm really bad at that I enjoy doing. We couldn't honestly believe that they enjoyed doing it, but they did. And so not only did they, would they hit Mac almost almost every single time they played in the middle of the game, uh, he got, I don't even know how this story even happened, but he got somehow taken by a pet shop into buying a Bengal tiger. <laughs> but... Wait, was, wait, this is the original guy who has a dad. And th- the, this is uh, the original guy, yeah. yeah. So he's the original guy, the cheater, buys a Bengal tiger, but then realizes he can't take it home. So now he owns a Bengal tiger that he basically just goes to the pet store, wherever the hell it is he bought this thing from, and takes steaks there like a couple times a week to feed the tiger. Just he tried to sell. He tried to sell a shotgun at the table one time. Like, hey, you want anybody want to buy my gun for a couple hundred bucks? Because I need poker money. Is he still around? This guy? I haven't talked to him in 
20 years. Is he going to listen to this? Probably not. I highly doubt it. Yeah. And I haven't said his name yet, but he should definitely recognize the story if he does stumble across this. And, and, and never play poker again and certainly right. never buy a Bengal Tiger. And there can't be that many people that invited their dad and their cousin to the same poker game that happened on Marion Lane in State College, Pennsylvania, <laughs> and, and, every Sunday from about 94 to 97. And deep down, he knows he's a really bad poker player. Deep down, I hope to hell he stopped playing cards when he entered more expensive, less friendly environments, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Super inexpensive and friendly. Like, Yeah. So I, I've I've enjoyed poker. I enjoy online poker. Like back before it was illegal in most of the country because they determined that it was basically wire fraud to actually put uh, or wire fraud. Am I, we'll working. go with that, sure. But it's the government making stuff up so they can wire transfer or something, right? So that, there was a law that was passed probably 2007. This is a Pennsylvania law. No, this is a national law. Oh, wow. Yeah, so you used to be able to play online poker, and you could put money on, you could take money off, and you could in, in, uh, play tournaments against everybody in the world. It's just adults p- taking money from each other, or winning money from each other. Well, and they say that poker is a game of skill, um, and I guess if you're a net winner, you might argue that that's the case. Um, so when my daughter was young, I would enjoy, like my wife would go out for, you know, girls' night out and, and enjoy some, like, adult time away from our kids. Sure. You know, and, uh, you know, I'd put the kids to bed, and then I'd enjoy a tournament. You could join a tournament for 20 or 30 bucks against 500 or 600 players and you could win four or five six thousand dollars it's a good night yeah and it's you know because you're you get players from all over the world so i did pretty well with online poker then it became illegal so i i'm not going to play i don't like to play for fake money because then your the players don't take it seriously and you can't you can't read anything if it's not worth anything. Yeah. So it like just destroys it. Yep. Uh, so then I would uh, go out to the World Series of Poker, you know, every year for about, well, except for last year, of course, uh, 2020, in case this needs to be dated. Um, do you want to date? Do you want to timestamp the recording? Timestamp September 1st, 2021. There World Series of Poker 2020 in person canceled. Right. Uh, due to Corona. Um, so yeah, apart from that, I had gone out to the World Series of Poker like six, seven years in a row. But you're not playing the big tournament. Uh, no, so they have 60, 70 uh, bracelet events, is what they call them, and that's that's the big thing for poker players. They want to win a bracelet at the World Series. Uh, the buy-ins range from $500 uh, all the way up to a million dollars. And then the main event, the one that gets all the attention, like the Chris Moneymaker event, the one that you know gets $10 million for, for first place, uh, that's a $10,000 buy-in. I would usually buy in for about 1000 or 1500 and so my MO uh, in going out there for, for those years was uh, I wouldn't play any cards all year because now it's illegal and I'm a dad and working and I don't have time for that. So I'd go out there cold every year. Right. Uh, I'd also fly out and then play a tournament the same day, which is also really stupid. Not a great idea. Very yeah. dumb. So I'd go out and i get shelled. i get destroyed in the very first event that i that I do regret it because it was usually the most expensive one I'd buy into. And then I would play these side events where they would have, I think it was like $285 buy-in. Uh, there's tens of thousands of poker players out there. So this side event would have all the bust outs from the bracelet event. You'd get a thousand players in that tournament to the point where even first place in this side event, this like loser's bracket, if you will, right. would be 40 grand. Yeah. And so for probably five of the six years that I went out there, I would final table one of those, which would mm. which would pay for all of the sins of how bad I did in the bracelet event. More than pay for it, I would imagine. Yeah, it was. It would usually. It's nice if you have a hobby that has the opportunity to return some dollars. So, you haven't entered the big event because the ten thousand dollar event, not the million dollar buy-in. That sounds crazy. That's obscene. Yeah, yeah. But the ten thousand dollar 
big event, the one that the casual person knows about. Why have you not been in that? Uh, so we mentioned my conservative upbringing. Sure. Uh, and so I think the big but, thing But about, we are talking about poker. You true. are playing poker. I'm, I'm a gambler. I mean, to be an entrepreneur, you have to be a gambler, right? Like by nature. And so I am. But that conservatism sort of nags in the back of my head, that value of the dollar. And I think the number one rule of poker is you have to treat the money like it's not money. You have to treat the chips like little clay pieces of nothing in front of you. That's the currency of the realm. That's the only way I think about it. You think about it differently? For $10,000, I think about it differently. For $1,000, it's entertainment. So for me, just whatever mentally, now I don't know because I haven't done it, but I I think knowing myself that if I played for 10K instead of one, I would think I would translate the dollars too much and it would harm my game. So me playing stakes that are, you know, that are irrelevant or where I can play the math, I can play the people and and take the chances you're supposed to take to win a tournament. Right. That's my best chance of success. So at the moment. You putting in fifteen hundred dollars and three other people combining to put in eighty five hundred. That's not something that works for you? It's a thought that's crossed my mind. I've had some people potentially ask me about that. Some recently, some yeah. further back. Yeah, so I mean the idea of being staked, um, it's attractive. It's something I've thought about. Uh, sort of a PTSD moment on that, if you will, is the uh, real estate experience in Wildwood. You know, so my real estate career was making three fortunes and losing one, mm. and unfortunately, the Jersey was losing one, and I had investors, and so that kind of yeah, stings. Yeah, that, that's, that's feel, tough. Feel bad about it. Now, of course, if I were to take, you know, backers for a poker tournament, I would, you know, one know that their financial situation is such that like that they can afford to go to zero. Cause it's it's be, clay chips. Not, yeah, that no. should be their expectation. Is if you give me money to go play poker, you're it's not gone. Ever see it again? Yeah, it's gone. Right, and so I, I would obviously have that level of diligence and sort of appropriate guardrails around it, but the the some of the PTSD of losing other people's money on frivolous gambling, uh, I don't I haven't tried it, so I don't know how my brain would react to that. So these other people, let's just say you put in twenty five hundred, three other people put in twenty five hundred, there's your ten. I would have a shit ton of fun though. Let's assume that those other three people are all adults uh-huh. and understand how money works and they understand the odds. I think you can get your, get your mind past it. I will play in the main event. If not multiple times, certainly once. I mean, you're not getting a younger bill is what I'm saying. And, you know, and the attention span to sit there playing poker and like actually paying attention and doing math and stats for 15 hours a day for eight days in a row, if you actually make it all the way. Yeah, you don't, you know, Doyle Brunson has shown you really don't do that as well when you're 80 as you do when you're 50. So Yeah, yeah, you have to be on the entire time. Yeah, so it's probably like in the next 10 years to like be legitimately... Like, it's, I'm not going to sit here and call poker a sport, no matter what ESPN says. <laughs> but you do. They only call it a sport because they can make ad money off of it. Yeah, they also call darts a sport, which, sure. you know, that's a pass. Cor- cornhole is also a sport, apparently. Cornhole, bowling. Again, it's a physical activity. Kudos the, to those who can roll 300 games. There are people moving to, uh, when they <laughs> join these endeavors, yes. Right. Um, but uh, I don't even know where I was going with this, actually. Uh, <laughs> where were you going? I have no idea. Silent Rob, where was he going? Oh, it, I was going. You were calling me old. Thank you. you were no, saying, I said before you get old. I right. was not calling you old. So I, at some I, point you will be. I feel like I have probably ten years to have the proper focus and virility to sit in a chair for fifteen hours a day doing math and playing poker. Okay, so you should probably start pretty soon. Then I should. The big tournament. Well, this massive bracelet, multiple bracelet events, is in October. Yeah, so usually it's in July, or it goes from like the end of May till the middle of July, and I'm excited because, and that's in Vegas, 
And so being in Vegas in July is not all that awesome. Unless you're inside for 15 hours a day. True. But you do eventually have to leave. Right. And then it's even worse because you're leaving like the 55 degree casinos for the 155 degree outside. And it's like going from the freezer straight into the microwave. And the blocks are like four miles long. Correct. Yeah. And I'm an Uber guy and, and Vegas hates Uber. So they put every Uber parking lot like 82 miles away from So you have to wait forever. Yeah, exactly. And cook. And I'm bald. So I get burned easily. You can wear a hat though. I have solutions to all your uh, objections, <laughs> by the way. So, but this year, you're right. It's in October because of COVID. They delayed it to October. So, I am, I am actually, I'm very much. I've booked my tickets. I am very, very anxious to go out there for the World Series this year, and I'm going to love being in Vegas in October. But you're not going to play in the big tournament. I did not schedule my trip for when the big tournament is being played. Could you sign up for it now? You could sign up for it like three days into it. Are, is there a cap on the number of players? No, so with the main event, they'll have four, they call them starting flights. So I think they maybe can do about 4,000 players in each of those starting flights based on the dealers and tables and space that they have. But that's why they do it over multiple days. So it'll be four different groups. And I am keep doing hand motions this entire time. The, the people that are watching the video eventually will love this. <laughs> <laughs> Which isn't being taken. Correct. Um, so they, they have... You all start on each of the four days, and then it gets whittled down to roughly half of of whoever started that day. And then on day five, it's actually everybody's day two. Okay. So they have all these different starting flights, and then it all comes together into a big poker. So they can handle 16,000. They could probably handle 32,000 if they had to. Well, I mean, let's face it. It's Vegas, and it's money. So they will find it. They would take... 50,000. They will not turn money away. They'll just open another convention center and put tables in the Or pop up a tent in the middle of the desert or whatever. Hell yeah, with Uber drivers. Right. They take a long time to get there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so seriously, I I mean, I might have 2,500 bucks that you could... That's one. I got 2,500. Oh, I I can get you the rest of it. All right, awesome. Not for me personally, because I don't don't trust your skills that much. You should not. Yeah. (laughs) You definitely should not. All right, so entrepreneurship, has it always taken the form of real estate, or are there other forms of uh, entrepreneuring that you've been involved in? Well, I mean, as a a kid, I sort of, quote-unquote, ran my own businesses. I mean, they obviously weren't real businesses, per se, but, you know, putting flyers around the neighborhood, you need your lawn mowed. You You were uh, marketing. Yeah, you know, leaves raked, uh, snow shoveled, kids babysat. I uh, I had a snow cone business, the old Snoopy snow cone machine. You remember that? Yeah, thing? oh sure, I had one. Yeah. You ever grind away on one of those? Oh, absolutely. You ever grind away on it for like four hours? Nope. So I did. <laughs> did you, was it worth it? No. So I. <laughs> but you learned. I did. It was it was fun. I would uh, I I set up on the front porch in the middle of the summer with my Snoopy snow cone machine for like a quarter a uh, you know a quarter snow cone grinding away. It's a manual crank. Oh to yeah. Like grind on the wheel, and uh, I would have. Maybe six customers in like three hours. But the one customer was the neighbor kid who seemed to have an endless supply of quarters. So hmm. it was worth it for me because my parents gave me the supplies for free. So I had no overhead. And that kid would buy like 30 snow cones from me in a day. So I had like 750 from him and like 50 cents from the rest of the neighborhood combined. It's a lot of cranking for one kid. It's a lot of cranking. I was his personal snow cone maker. And he must have really loved snow cones. I should have come up with a different arrangement, like actually made that a salary position or something. Or, or charge 50 cents per snow cone. Yeah. Oh, Bobby's coming. 50 cents. Right. Bro. Bobby's yeah. going to pay for it. There's no way he doesn't. <laughs> yeah. So then I also, I uh, had a baseball card business where, mm. you know, I'd go and buy them in bulk and, you know, collate sets and 
sell you know all my all the neighborhood moms and dads would like come to me to get their kids ber- uh, birthday and Christmas presents because oh, I was, nice. had a baseball card shop I would do like shows what's the coolest card you you've ever had I still have uh, the coolest card and then a bunch of others so I uh, I worked for a baseball card store store and a place called the Pensock and Mart which was awful um, but they had a baseball card shop there. And so I worked for like six weekends, four hours a day on a Saturday for a 1908 Ty Cobb. Oh, wow. Yeah. So. What was his rookie year? I've, they didn't really, rookie years weren't really what was a thing, thing back, back then? then. No. So like the rookie card. 08 Cobb? Whew. So I've seen it as high. Now I would get more for it if I got it graded. So most of these old cards you get graded. Um, which means like what condition is it in? Is it and meant then, to whatever? Yeah, yeah. And, and of course a 1908, there is no such thing as mint. Mine's in really good shape. I actually think it would value quite well. It's probably a $10,000 plus card. Holy cow. Yeah. How long have you had it? Well, I wasn't even driving yet when I worked in that baseball card shop. And that was how they paid me. So I worked those bunch of weekends. And so they had that card in the window and I looked at it for like years. Like that was the place where I'd go to buy my baseball cards. You're never going to sell it. No, no, that's in a safe in my house. Yeah. And so I, I looked at it for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I said, I'm like, I can't, it was like 120 bucks at the time, something like that. I'm like, I don't have 120 bucks. How can I get that card? They said, well, come in, you know, and work for us. So that's what I did. I collated cards for them, you know, helped them out in the back room, getting everything ready. And they paid me with that card. And then I put together a 1959 set, which was just random. I happened to like the looks, the look of the cards. Um, there were a bunch of, coaches from when I was a fan who were players in 1959. So it was like Whitey Herzog and Dick Williams and a bunch of these guys who were uh, players in 59. It just so happened that I had a bunch of the cards. So I'm like, ah, I've got a bunch of them. I put together a whole set. So I, I completed that set over years and years and years. So like when I was a kid, baseball cards were, were my thing for about, you know, eight or 10 years maybe before I got a driver's license and discovered uh, dating. Um, Girls are a lot more fun than baseball cards. They're also a lot more expensive. Ah, that's true. <laughs> so are cars, also a lot more expensive. But worth worth it, maybe. They, they're they a lot more interactive than a baseball card is. Yes. Yeah. Unless you think the cards are talking to you. <laughs> I never got into those kinds of substances for the most part. So, no, they never they never talked to me. But there was, there was a period of years where, like, you know, I'd come down Christmas morning, and my brother would have piles of presents under the Christmas tree, and I'd have something approximately the size of a baseball <laughs> card under the tree. Because it was like a $300 Mickey Mantle card that I needed to complete that 59 set. That's cool. And I'm sitting there, I'd open it. I'm like overjoyed. I'm thrilled. And then the rest of the time, I'm like, hey, Brad, can I play with your toys? Because I just got this <laughs> there's, Mickey There's Mantle not much card. for me to do with this yeah. card. So, I mean, I still have uh, my collection. But I've, I, you know, basically when I got a driver's license, I have every set from like, in, I had a 51, 59, then every set from like 71 and 94, 94. Actually, no, sorry, 90, because that's about when I got my driver's license. So there's a clear line in my collection of when I got a driver's license. So uh, do you think you've made money, given all the hours you put into it and all the money you've spent? Or uh, it doesn't, you don't care because you just enjoy doing it? I don't care. Um, but cash in, cash out, yeah, I've probably made money. If you try to assign anything to the labor, to the Time, then, then you lose money. Then, I, then I'm a huge loser. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so you go into, let's say, an antique store, and they get their antiques through estate sales typically, and you find like three boxes full of uh, binders with cards that have been fairly well kept. Mm-hmm. Are you buying those? Or are you, you, you at least talking to the uh, Yeah, the maybe. I'm definitely going to have a conversation. 
And when I had my baseball card store and was doing shows, I bought several such collections, which is why in aggregate, every card I have now is probably free to me against what I sold. Right. But again, the time, I mean, you know, I could have been better off, you know, recycling cans. Probably. Mm. Mm. Okay. That's a good way to it think was, about it. It was not it, on an hourly basis. It was not a, uh, a wealth driving endeavor. But you enjoyed it. I loved it. Sure. And you you loved it mostly because you got to organize, you got to complete a set. Like I, It was never really a thing for me as a kid. I was just a big baseball fan, so I would do random things like keeping some of the newspapers that I delivered that happened to have like, you know, whatever, Schmidt's X home run or, you know, Steve Carlton's whatever strikeout. Um, I've got some pictures actually that I took at my house that I'll show you uh, after after the podcast of some of the uh, yeah. the memorabilia that I have. I just loved watching baseball. I loved the game. I loved the Phillies. Um, I would sit and listen to, to games on the radio, like to fall to sleep by, you know, when I was a kid. So I just liked them for whatever reason, even though I guess for the same reason people like comics. They're inanimate. They don't do a lot. They're not as fun as a video game, but at the time it was my thing. And there's some math too, right? I mean, stats are a thing. Yeah, and if you're buying and selling them, then there's the then there's the business angle, which, <laughs> which I, I, I mean, more like me batting out. average in the ERA, but right. yes, yeah, I knew what you meant. But, yeah, you know, and I had my own scoreboard, like how many cards do I have? Like I actually used to do silly things, like know exactly how many cards I had, and have like these numbers that I would put on on my own scoreboard about how many I had. That, that's awesome entertainment. right? I can't believe it, I told you that. No, it works for you though, right? Yeah, or at least it did. Yeah, are you still doing that? Do you know how many cards you have right now? I know roughly how many I have, but my new version of that is, of course, being in sales and marketing. My new scoreboard is how are we doing at work? Ah, nice. And that's where it comes from. <laughs> it, was, it was from back when that, I was nine. That explains a lot. Yeah, I'm a counter. That explains a ton, actually. I'm a counter. That's why Peloton has me. Peloton, game of, you know, they're experts at gamification. Oh, yeah. I can't, I can't just get on Peloton and do a ride. Like, hey, I just want to do 30 minutes of exercise. Like, I'm looking at the stats. I'm looking at what number am I? Oh, I'm only like whatever from whatever. You're too easy for Peloton. I am. I, yeah, I am. I am their target and they hit me square. All right. So besides uh, FBI encounters, any <laughs> other fun encounters that you had as a real estate guy? Uh, well, so... If I might not have mentioned, I am somewhat frugal by nature, um, having the conservative upbringing. And so one of the rules of real estate, there's two rules of real estate. I broke them both. uh, And I really paid for the one. Well, I almost paid for the one. One is have a separate LLC for every property. So that way, if you have an issue for whatever reason, like a tenant slip and fall or or something It's just on that one place. It is just on that one place. So I did have separate LLCs, of course, for each of the different partnerships that I had somewhat broken down by geography or or type of property, but I did not have a separate LLC for every property. The other rule is have a uh, PO box to have all of your Mm. rents delivered to. So the reason to have a PO box is that your tenants do not know where you live. Right. I was too cheap to do that. I used my home address as... Uh, I wish I had known you back then. I would have told you not to do that. Well, uh, people did tell me. And of course... Oh, and you still did it. Oh, yeah. I'm 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 the typical person who needs to make the same mistake you did and learn it that way instead of just learning from your mistake. I got to make it myself. Got it. So I did not set up a P.O. box. Um, I used my own address for everybody to mail their their rent checks to. Um, And so I had... Uh, there was a place called Newcastle in Delaware where there mm-hmm. was, it was an awesome cash flow neighborhood. Like I just, I love this neighborhood. The homes were a lot newer than everything else in Delaware. There were duplexes up and down, two bed, one bath. They were close to everything. They were easy to rent. It was an awesome investment. So I had 
nine duplexes in this one neighborhood. And I would go in there every Saturday and I'd, and I'd also mow all the, lawn, all the lawns myself. So I'd like mow just up one row and down the other, you know, collect trash, collect rent from people who maybe still owed it to me. You were full-time doing all this. Full-time. Yeah. Well, I was still working full-time, but this was what I was doing on Saturdays or right. Saturdays and Sundays. And so I would also do the pay or quit notices. If someone hasn't paid you, your first step towards eviction is a pay or quit notice. So unfortunately, I, I had to go through that route a, a few times. And so I put a pay or quit notice on this guy's door uh, one Saturday, and he showed up at my house later that Saturday, not appreciating the pay or quit notice that I put on his door, and he pulled a gun on me. And he was, you know... This is the first time you basically said, hey, you owe me money, man. Yeah, this was like step one. And right. like we're probably four or five months from eviction at that point, even though he at that point owes me two months of rent. You know, the month in arrears and then the five days into the month that we're in. And so he showed up armed and, you know, pulled a gun on me. And I honestly don't even know, like, what made him ultimately go away. I don't know if it was a neighbor. I don't know if it was, like, traffic in the neighborhood. Because I lived in a townhouse, so it was, there was a lot of like people there. It was also on a golf course. There's a lot of people around. So I don't know what ultimately scared him away, but he pulled a gun on me and told me that he didn't think it was a good idea for me to ask him for the rent. What was he hoping to gain by pulling a gun on you? Just that you would never ask him to pay the rent I guess, again? Yeah. <laughs> but he ultimately, he then moved out voluntarily is how the story ends. He left nonviolently, like nothing actually ever came of it. But I mean, obviously I was, I was pretty shook <laughs> by that, by that uh, event. Yeah. Because you may not be here because of that. But then I went and bought a bunch more rental property, so I guess it wasn't that shook. Did you start using a P.O. box? What would you think of me if I said no? <laughs> I, I, I will not share my, uh, my opinion. I, I did not. But no more, At that point, no, no I was no more, like, no more well, guns. You know, no more guns. At that point, I was probably like, well, what, what else could happen? Uh, another gun in your face. Although, actually, that's so that's not true. I did not get a, a P.O. box, but I actually got a property manager soon after. Okay. It wasn't necessarily because of that event, although I'm sure that sort of played at least into my psyche somehow. Right. It was more at that time. I was still working full-time at MBNA, and I, I had been buying a lot of properties, and so I was getting to the point where I either needed to quit and do it full-time or get someone who was doing it full-time so that they could handle court and paperwork and be on top of everything yeah, in a lot. way that, that I just, you know, was starting to get to the edge of being able to do. Yeah. Well, so, there are other things you could be doing on the weekends, too. Correct. Besides mowing other people's lawns, picking up trash, and having guns pulled on me. Yeah. <laughs> right. All right. So we're going to end with, well, actually, I have three ideas. Uh, so it'll be a three-part ending here. Okay. Part one, we'll, we'll keep the, uh, the flyers out of this. <laughs> What's your prediction for the Eagles this coming season? Oof. So we have a 17-game season for the first time ever, right? Yep. Which is weird. I don't know why. Am I allowed? I, I get, I get there, you're going to make money by having a 17th game if you're the NFL or a team, but it just, it just seems weird. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. Well, so even though the NFC East teams play each other twice, can I predict that they all go 0-17 and get removed from the National Football League? Uh, the math would say that's not possible to your point, but um, the NFC East will be, again be bad. Okay, so here's my prediction: the uh, Dak Prescott gets hurt again. We not we're not wishing that on Dak, or maybe you are as an NFC East guy. I'm not wishing that on. Dak. I'm not Prescott. wishing it on Dak. I'm just stating it as I see it. You yeah. asked for a prediction. I think he's been hurt three times in the. Uh, that's pre-season. like predicting that Carson Wentz is going to get hurt again. Right. 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 I, I like my odds. Yeah. Or that Joel Embiid is going to get hurt again. Right. I, I like my odds. Right. So yep. Dak gets hurt. Um, 
I draft Ezekiel Elliott, so he is a monster season. But Dak gets hurt. The Eagles go nine and eight and win an awful NFC East. The Eagles go nine and eight. Nine I think eight. I think the favorite right now is Washington, despite the fact that they their quarterback situation is a little. Well, good. Vegas usually sets good lines, but I I would take the field against Washington. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. So are you saying Philly nine and eight because you're a homer? Of course. Okay. All right. Yeah. So and because they all suck, they're so, terrible. So NFC East. All right. So they win the NFC and East. NFC least. I mean, there's a legit moniker there. NFC East. They're the four seed. They have to play the five seed. If they had to play Penn State in the first round of the playoffs, I would not like their odds. All right. So if they happen to miraculously get into the playoffs, there's no chance they they win a playoff game. You've always got a puncher's chance, Nick Foles. Fair enough, but pr- probably not. If you're probably putting money not. down, you're not, not, you're not betting on that. not putting my own money on that, no. Yeah, all right. Um, the Sixers. I guess the first <laughs> question is, is Ben Simmons going to suit up for the oh, Sixers? Oh, God. Uh, no. Where is he going to go? And for how much money? Somewhere else. A lot. A and lot. The, you and, think a lot. And the Sixers are going to pay it. It only it only takes well you know for how no for how much money the Sixers have already paid it they're gonna he's gonna go some calls for the Sixers and and the Sixers are gonna have to pay the Delta so he's gone I think so I think he has to be although I mean realistically like as now what a month has elapsed since the draft it looks less and less likely but I'm still going with gone okay I'm with you I think he's gone yeah I think there's some silly team like New Orleans will pick him up or some. The, the Carolina team will pick him. So, somebody goofy will pick him up. And we'll never hear about him ever again. Yeah. Maybe the first No, actually, we're going to hear about him because he'll become, he'll become a Hall of Famer when no. he leaves Philadelphia. <laughs> That's, so, see Ryan Sandberg. There's any No, I, I understand. I don't think Ben Simmons is going to fall in that ball, though. <laughs> Probably not. I mean, if he gets out of his own head and can actually shoot the ball with, with some confidence, I maybe he is a Hall of Famer someday. Right. All right. Uh, I, I'm going to ask about the Phillies. I can't name one player besides Harper, and I'd forgotten Harper was on the team when you mentioned him earlier. Uh they're not going to win this season. No, they? they're going to str- – but what's going to happen, I think, because they're doing it already, is they're going to string us along till the very end of the season, which actually is kind of nice because then there's something Then you're in kind it. Of, you know, I'm As check- a fan, you're in it the whole season. When, when we wrap this up, I will check to see if they are winning tonight. You check every game. I do. Yeah. Foolishly. So they're going to string us along till the end. But So I actually – so one of the guys that we work with is a huge Mets fan, and we were when the, uh, the Phillies swept the Mets, it put them in first place by two games. And so I was telling him, and I was giving him a hard time, but also serious. I'm like, I love having the Mets ahead of us because the Mets always choke to the Phillies. They, they'll do that for yeah. us. I said, the team that I don't want right behind us is the Braves. Well, the Braves are right behind us. Now they're in first. And so I imagine the Braves will hold us off and they'll go and do their thing. Yeah, I think smart money's on the Braves probably yeah. for that division. Yep. Uh, all right. So that's that was part one of a three-part ending. Wow. Uh, okay. Part two is talk to me about your family, your immediate family. Uh, so I'm married to my wife, Stephanie. We've been married for 16 years, been together about 20. Uh, I've got a daughter who's in a sophomore in high school, Cameron, and a son who is a freshman in high school, Mason. Uh, they are actually further apart than that would imply. My daughter is uh, old for her grade. My son is young for his. Uh, but it's it's a blast. It is a blast. It is a blast. House. Uh, well, Sometimes, sometimes you want to blast them, but most of the time, it's a blast. Uh, net outcome, it's a blast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Stephanie, PH or F? Uh, PH. Hmm, that's old school. That wasn't think. meant to be a trick question, but I did have to think for a second. <laughs> it was not meant to be a trick question. PH, I think, is more old school. Yeah, 
I don't even know what that means, but I, I think I knew P.H. Stephanie's as a kid. I didn't know any apps, and then millennials have just kind of done weird things. Yeah, so we, we share our joy for real estate voyeurism, and she uh, decided to get licensed in Delaware and Pennsylvania. Is she still, uh, is she doing it? Yeah, she's she's licensed in both states. It was sort of like she enjoys showing houses. She enjoys helping people, you know, get, get the home of their dreams. Yeah. Um, obviously, you can call your own hours, uh, and so it's it's been you know, stressful for her because she also takes things very personally. If, uh, even if it's not her fault, even if she's really gone above and beyond to deliver for her client, she takes things very personally, but, um, it's, it's a great job for her based on her interests. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Set your own hours, except when the client <clears throat> is demanding that something happen at a certain time. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. So third part, I don't know if you're a late night talk show host, forget current, uh, late night, talk shows you have your own now okay it's only for one night though if you do really well maybe it becomes a few weeks <laughs> but it's in this uh scenario it's only one night you get to have a male guest a female guest have you heard this yet i have not this isn't your usual parting uh we do, we've been bouncing around all right male guest female guest and band or comedian depending on whichever you have more of an affinity for your male and female guest and your band or your or your comedian can all be dead or alive and so this can be for your entertainment, your fulfillment, the audience entertainment, et cetera, et cetera. All right. So band. Uh, I'm going to give you two because I guess we're writing the rules as we go. Oh, it's your show. Sure. Uh, so uh, Pink Floyd is the old school. Okay. Roger Waters, Pink Floyd? Yes. Roger okay. Waters, Pink Floyd. Uh, one of the first concerts I saw, actually. Um, so I, I, that's a big get. Cause I don't think a late night show in the history of man has gotten Pink Floyd to come. Well, off. shit, if I'm, if I'm in charge, I'm <laughs> no, gonna, I get I'm it. Get, in, fa- in fact, your, your show is in a, in a stadium. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So we're going to take Pink Floyd and maybe opening for Pink Floyd because you'd have this particular, uh, set of fans in any particular arena is going to be Flo Rida. Mm. He's going to open up for Pink Floyd. Okay. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting combo, mm-hmm. but you're a f- big fan of both, obviously. I'm a big fan of both. Um, wow. Who am I going to have as a female guest and a male guest? Uh, for And if I take too long to think about it, are you going to cut out the time so it doesn't I can. like I thought so, about so it? So it like makes you sound minutes. like you're a really quick thinker. Like, I'm like I knew exactly yeah. who it was that I wanted. I mean, there's so many options. Like There's so many you know really cool athletes that you would want that are deceased. Like I would love to talk to um, any of the baseball players from the you know early 1900s like Babe Ruth Ty Cobb around just how different the game was you know before athletes were you know paid millions and millions of dollars and they actually needed like jobs yeah in, in the offseason right. like I think that would be interesting um I think uh military generals uh from World War II or the Civil War would be very interesting mm. Winston Churchill um, a lot of interesting military and, and political gets. You got to pick one. I have to pick one. Yeah. You were going to hold me. You're going to hold me. Yeah. Back well, I mean, like in this scenario, we would revive somebody who's dead and they would be on your show. All right. So I'll go even a little bit different. So I know this like fourth hand from like family lore of, of get togethers, but apparently one of my great, 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 put a bunch of greats in there, uh, grandparents. Uh, declined to invest with Ben Franklin in the light bulb. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna have Ben Franklin on my on my talk show, and we're gonna talk about the light bulb. Are you gonna try to change the course of history potentially and say, hey, when when my idiot great times twelve says he doesn't want to invest, can you work a little bit harder on him? 
Yeah, maybe I'll do that. Yeah. It sounds good. Let's hop in the DeLorean. <laughs> sure. Go back. Like Ben, you know, when uh, when great, 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 great granddaddy Walker says no, like sell harder. Yeah, please. <laughs> yeah, sell much harder. Uh, female. Um, well, hold on. For you, female. Yeah. What is it about the light bulb? Or is it just your family connection to that? It's, it's the, the family yeah. connection okay. to the story. Right. Well, I mean, obviously, Ben Franklin is is interesting for any number of he, reasons. He's so famous as an American historical figure that a lot of Americans believe he was one of the presidents. Fair enough. That's how f- famous he was. Well, and also, a long time you know, ago. of course, Philly having been sort of, yeah, you know, center of the universe in the old days. Well, and that's, he was kind of the king of Philly back in yeah. the day. Yeah. So go with Ben Franklin, right? And then we'll go even older for the female, and we'll go Joan of Arc. Wow. Yeah. Joan of Arc, because my my only real knowledge of Joan of Arc I learned from uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Otherwise, <laughs> I don't know much about Joan of Arc. Maybe I'll just, you know, ask her to describe if Bill and Ted's was right. <laughs> what is it about Joan of Arc, really, that you... Uh, uh, Miss, Miss of Arc, is that really what happened? Did she have a real a full name? Or is she just Joan, like a one-name superstar? I... And I what only, is the of Arc all about? I only... Well, that's where she's from. Isn't that how they labeled people back it's, then? It's, she's from a place yeah. called Arc? Bill of Merchantville. Okay, Paul of <laughs> Ashland, sure. I don't know. <laughs> But I mean, well, think about it. Well, you and she, I should know, learn a lot more about Joan of Arc. We should, but isn't, wasn't she 15? And, and She was a youngin', for sure. Yeah, and a female, which both are, that. I mean, the age, I guess, when your life expectancy is 30-something or yeah. 40-something isn't as striking, but to be... Still striking. But female of that age with the kind of responsibility and leadership she had... And she was going after it. Has to be a hell of a story. Zero hesitation, and anything she did is the impression she's left on history. Has to be a hell of a story. All right, so we're going to end on Joan of Arc, I think. We could. Unless you got something else you want to go after. We could end on that. Joan of Arc. And she's from Arc, per se. <laughs> wherever, yeah, wherever Arc is in Europe. Joan from there. I, I'm sure back in the day it was a much longer name of the town. But <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's been short and Arc over Joan time. of Arc de Triomphe. <laughs> All right. Well, actually, I'll make this a four-parter. Okay. Your grandkids listen to this someday. Your, of course, your unborn grandkids at this point. You have advice for them. Uh, Say when they're 17 or 18, they really need to hear some wisdom from granddad. You know, one of the things, and some of your other guests have talked about it, uh, but it does resonate with me, is it's striking how financially illiterate most Americans Mm. are. And it really is the single best thing I think you can do for yourself is make sure that you understand at least the rudimentary mechanics of personal finance. And when I think about um, some of the things that irritated me most about my parents, but that now I appreciate the most about them was them teaching me the value of a dollar, teaching me about personal finance, time value of money, all of those sort of important foundational things that schools generally do a pretty poor job of. Um, I would say either take the electives if they're offered, find some way to learn about it, but educate and arm yourself uh, from a personal finance standpoint, because I mean, increasingly, there there is no gold watch at 30 years. No one's looking out for right. you. There is no pension anymore. Um, you need to look out for yourself. So educate yourself, young folk, uh, and you know, make that kind of job one. Pay yourself first. Yeah, pay yourself first. Yeah, what is it, the eighth wonder of the world is compound interest. Nice. Like, that's legit. Yeah. I don't know if that's Einstein, I think, who said that. Probably. Yeah. yeah. That's It's legit. That's a good way to end. Yeah. Beautiful. Thanks for joining, Bill. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. 
We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.